Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the What's Important Now podcast. Chief Ryan Landrum coming to you from the Border Patrol Academy here in Artesia, New Mexico. So we talk a lot about the Border Patrol being a small family, a close-knit family. Though many of those families aren't necessarily bound by blood, the experiences that we share together over time uh, in the field, in training, etc., uh, really drive us together uh, to form family-like bonds. But sometimes uh, we actually do share uh, a family bond with folks that are uh, also Border Patrol agents, uh, civilian staff, other uh, law enforcement or organizations within CBP. Uh, that's a pretty pretty common theme throughout the Border Patrol. And today, um, it's no different. I'd like to uh, welcome our guest today, Chief Patrol Agent Carl Landrum from the Laredo Sector Border Patrol. Thank you. Good opportunity to be here. So, as many of you know, uh, the former chief of the Laredo Sector, Matt Hudak, I was recently promoted to the deputy chief of the U.S. Border Patrol. He's now in Washington, D.C. And uh, last week, I believe it was, Chief Ortiz uh, named you as his successor, Chief Hudak's successor, as the chief of the Laredo sector. Um, truly a, um, a, an awesome opportunity to, to get to remain in Laredo, and especially being promoted in Laredo. Um, I'd been there for about a year as the deputy chief of Laredo. So getting to make that movement from deputy to chief is is a great opportunity and truly honored to have that opportunity. Well, congratulations on uh, from Thank behalf you. of the uh, men and women of the U.S. Portugal Academy. Uh, looking forward to the great things that you're going to do down there with the team in Laredo. Um, and just as an editorial note, uh, Carl is uh, is my uncle. So going back to the uh, the blood relationship that that we uh, that we share, uh, Carl is you know if you watched my podcast, uh, largely the reason I'm in the U.S. Border Patrol today. So I uh, appreciate that, all the mentorship and guidance over the years, especially as I was uh, you know, an 18-year-old kid trying to get in this organization. I appreciate that. And contrary to the belief that we're brothers, <laughs> so we are, are actually nephew and uncle, yeah. even though mo- I think most of the patrol thinks we're brothers. Yeah, we, I think we've just stopped uh, correcting folks this right. time. That's right. I'd like to take a minute tell you a little bit about uh, Carl's 25-year uh, career in the U.S. Border Patrol. So it says here you started unit on duty at the Brownfield Station in the San Diego sector in October of 1996, about 25 years ago, a little over 25 years ago, as a member of Class 323. Uh, as with tradition of every guest, I have to ask you, do you still remember your class chant? I, I do remember the class chant. So it was 323, on the line is where we'll be. So and There I, you go. I utilize that frequently. We use it um, during um, when we uh, EOD new trainees into Laredo sector. So all the staff there, we challenge the staff there too. So we keep it alive. It doesn't just it doesn't just end at the academy. Yeah. So I think uh, Chief Owens formally talked about this a lot. This is one of those things that uh, you literally start on your first week, day or days to weeks at the academy, and it is it is unique to your class and your classmates. It's the only you know fifty or so of people in the entire world that had this same chant. And uh, for whatever reason, because you say it so often, or or just because of the experience, you just never forget it. Absolutely. Good deal. Um, so I don't want to venture too far off topic, and but I'd like to ask you a question that, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know the answer to. Um, I have no idea how you got in the Border Patrol. You think I would know? But I, <laughs> I, I probably know most everything else, but uh, I literally do not know the story of how you became to be a Border Patrol agent. So I, I, I'll tell the story quickly, but prior to coming into the Border Patrol, I was a peace officer here in the state of Texas and a uh, canine handler. And... Goliad County, the sheriff, was setting up a 
tactical checkpoint on US 59 coming up from Laredo all the way up to Victoria. But they were doing it in Goliad, um, right outside of town. And they were doing this as a uh, joint checkpoint with Border Patrol out of Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, I got an invite to go down there because I was a canine handler. For me, it was a good opportunity to run the dog. So I'm like, absolutely. You know, I'll definitely be there. They were doing it. It was one night only, 12 hours, you know, and it was overnight. Um, so got down there. They had a, they, they had called in a bunch of canines from around the area because they were trying to facilitate the flow of traffic. At that time, that was a one-lane road each direction. And um, so it was just a good opportunity to work overall. But... Growing up in the family that we grew up mm-hmm. in, um, where everybody's law enforcement, mm-hmm. extended family or law enforcement, like cousins and stuff up in Philadelphia, um, uncles, everybody's, you know, wound pretty tight growing up in that <laughs> law enforcement environment. And um, and so that night, you know, that was the first experience for me um, to really see other ways that law enforcement work can be done. And obviously, I didn't know at the time anything about the Border Patrol and which stations were better than any other station or all those beliefs, you know, in that urban legend um, all the way across the board. But the point is, is that night, all of the agents that were up there from Corpus Christi made such a good impression on me. This was 1994. Mm. They made such a good impression on me that literally the next day, even though we had worked all night, I drove home. And before I even went to sleep... I called a recruiter down in McAllen, Texas, and applied. So that's how I end up in the United States Border Patrol. So I I learned that story just uh, along with you all. I'm a little ashamed that I didn't know that before, but uh, that's a a great story. And if if you were in Corpus Christi, Texas back in 1994, uh, you potentially contributed to to Chief Landrum's uh, tenure as a Border Patrol agent. They contributed more than they know. (laughs) And that, you know what? And honestly, that that's about that's honor first. Yes, sir. Right? We just uh, 100%. organizational excellence. Organizational excellence, and uh, you know, put forth uh, the best the best uh, board of agent you can be every single day, and uh, don't underestimate the impact that you have when you wear this badge, when you wear this uniform on some unsuspecting you know right. local cop who's who's just running a dog. Now he's a board of agent chief of the Laredo sector. Sure, it's pretty incredible. Speaking of, uh, you know, obviously, he kind of mentioned it. We're, we're both from uh, Victoria, Texas, a little old town in, in South Texas. But it says here you uh, you spend five or six months in Charleston, South Carolina, and you wind up in uh, the booming metropolis of San Diego, California, back in 1995, 1996, if you will. And uh, some stuff going on out there. It was it was very busy <laughs> um, whenever I EOD'd in the Border Patrol in San Diego. In fact, our, our, at least everybody in Class 323 will recall this. Um, the morning that we EOD'd in San Diego and we were actually being driven to the training center to go take the oath of office, um, the Otai Mountain was literally on fire. The entire mountain was on fire, and you could see it burning while we were going in to take the oath of office. So it was uh, interesting coming back and having to work in that environment after the academy. Charleston at the time, this is uh, 96 through probably 2001-ish, we kind of had, uh, we were, the U.S. Border Patrol was running two different academies, one in Charleston, South Carolina, one in uh, Glencoe, Georgia, or Brunswick, uh, Georgia, and it would just kind of flip-flop between classes. One would EOD and go to Charleston, one would EOD and go to Glencoe. That, that uh, maintained through my tenure in the early 2000s before we transitioned out to uh, the facility that we're at now in Artesia. So uh, over time, as you hear guests talk about Charleston or Glencoe, 
Uh, that's kind of why there's a split. And there's there's a longer history about the locations of, of the academies, but that's kind of our modern history story uh, with, with what where we train. Um, so you go out and you become a Border Patrol agent in Brownfield, uh, and then you quickly kind of promote over to the Imperial Beach Station. And for context, the Imperial Beach Station is the furthest western station in the United States. Uh, it is actually bordered by the Pacific Ocean. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful station as well. I mean, Brownfield is, is equally beautiful, but that, that kind of iconic picture of the water coming in and the fence uh, kind of going out into into the Pacific Ocean, that's that's the IB station. Tell me a little bit about, about that. Um, so, I, I mean, as everybody knows, every mile of border is just that mile of border. There, it's, it's different every place, everywhere. Um, being at uh, Imperial Beach was was uh, interesting. You know, the Brownfield experience was interesting, getting to actually move over to Imperial Beach and seeing it done a little bit differently, you know, a little less mountain, a little more ocean, um, you know, presented its own challenges across the board. And this was also during a time period when the original, you know, landing map fence was still up, mm. um, was starting to be discussed on through the national narrative of what would actually be required to secure the border in San Diego. I think apprehensions, if I remember correctly at that time, were about 4,000 a day between San Diego, Chula Vista, and Brownfield, which for the record, even though at the time those were four big stations, they only spanned across 14 miles right. of international border. That's a huge point. Three to four stations cover 15, 14 to 15 miles of border, right. and they're averaging 4,000 apprehensions right. between the three of them. That's that's intense. Right. And then, you know, the days it rained, it got a lot worse. Yeah. And I guarantee you on days, if we, if we, and I've said this a lot over the course of my career back at that time, if, if I was a part of bringing 400 people into custody, mm-hmm. 400 made it. Sure. I mean, there, there, there was just that much activity at that time. It was an assumption. So, well, you could see them. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it was we were You could actually see. You could actually see yeah. people getting away. I mean, it was that. That's how busy it was. It was interesting. Um, you know, and I got to see that environment. You know, from from day one being that busy in a matter of just a few years, getting all of that border barrier in place. Right. You know, in San Diego, mm-hmm. um, I actually got to see that go all the way to. You know, sometimes out there we were going 30, 45 days without a single apprehension at the station. Wow. You know, so yeah. a dramatic transition. So for listeners, we we kind of use San Diego as the model for infrastructure, uh, not in a political sense, uh, just in a very apolitical fashion of what um, potentially uh, a smart uh, barrier system might do for both uh migrants crossing the border illegally, but also, um, and Chief Scott, uh, the former chief of the Border Patrol, had a, had a, a really, really great presentation on the the impacts uh, that the community felt, the positive impacts. Mm-hmm. So, in, you know, you're patrolling IB circa 1999, you know, 2000, it's no man's land, right? You go there now, and there's literally, uh, the city has... Yeah crawled into the area maybe in which you used to patrol because uh, we're able to to kind of smartly patrol the border and you know keep the 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 work that we do as close to that international boundary as possible yeah it, it, that, that the control of the border allowed for the growth of multi-billions of dollars of real estate and um, right. commerce in that particular area right. and it also improved the neighborhood and communities on the south side of the fence in Tijuana, Mexico as well, 
by eliminating that that criminal element from the border environment. Right. So it improved both sides of the border. That's that's a, that's a, a fantastic story. And again, you know, you don't have to involve politics and just you know smartly patrolling an area and uh, benefiting positively, you know, two mm-hmm. two uh, two countries. So. Yeah, I, and and I say it a lot, especially um, especially pe- speaking externally to people outside the organization mm-hmm. that don't really understand it you know, about, you know, border barrier or, you know, whatever word you want to use, you know, that that's something that I've seen requested from 1996 to today. Mm-hmm. We've always wanted that. And we want it in our request because it helps us tactically mm-hmm. at that particular mile of border. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't address any kind of policy issue. It doesn't, you know, fix immigration law. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do all of those kind of things, but tactically for the men and women that are out there, you know, risking their lives, you know, day in, day out, it gr- dramatically helps them. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, as chief patrol agents, that's that, you know, especially for you, probably more so than me in, in that regard, and, you know, deploying, having the weight of uh, deploying, what, 1,800 or so border patrol agents in the Laredo sector uh, out to do the job every single night. The, the weight of their lives is on your shoulder because they're doing a job you asked them to do. So you have to, you know, at a minimum, request all of the tools necessary to ensure that they uh, that they can do their job efficiently, effectively, as well as safely. Right, one hundred percent. I mean, that that's the priority: getting agents on the border and and doing it in a way that they can do the job better, faster, easier. Yeah. I mean, that's I say that all the time. Yeah. So anything that surrounds that, anything that can improve it, so that the person that's out there actually completing that border security mission and that national security mission daily, that they can do it better, faster, easier, mm-hmm. then we want to we want to pursue all of those capabilities. Awesome. So this is where you should have to take a bit of an unconventional twist, right? Um, we talk a lot about, or I talk a lot about, you know, having broadening experiences, uh, holding command experiences, et cetera. But this is where uh, after IB, after being a supervisor in IB, you uh, switch over and become a special agent with the Federal Air Marshal Service. Why'd you do that? So remember the part of the story just a little while ago when I said we went from approximately 4,000 apprehensions a day, you know, down to zero, yeah. you know. <laughs> and the last couple of years that I was in in, in San Diego sector, um, it was challenging. I mean, it's, it's agents are a victim of their own success. Yeah. You know, we, you ask agents to shut the border down, they shut the border down, and then what? You know, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And so all of uh, all of 2002, you know, 9/11 had just occurred. Yep. Um, 2002, um, we were getting really good control of the border um, going into 2003, and then the opportunity came, and it was it was a split second kind of decision. It was like out of the blue, I'd really, I'd really forgotten that I did even applied for that job. And, you know, they called out of the blue and they're like, Hey, you know, do you want this job? Here it is. Uh, you'll be, you'll have to be in New York city. You'll have one week to get here. Um, you know, and it was instantaneous. Like, like I had to say yes or no. Um, this was a, a kind of a different transition for the, um, the, on the air marshal side, this was a limited window when they actually existed within ICE yeah. at that time. So they were leaving FAA and not quite to TSA yet. Wow. So so you go from one coast to the next, apparently, and yes. uh, stationed in New York City. Yeah. Um, so it's probably some international flights. Great opportunity, especially working out of the uh, New York field office. Um, just, you know, unbelievable. You're, you're predominantly working international flights. 
Um, plenty of domestic, you know, coast to coast, a lot of a uh, lot of a uh, lot of other coverage, you know, around the country. But truly a phenomenal opportunity to get to do that. Um, I spent 22 total months over there. Mm. I honestly feel like I traveled the world. Yeah. And, you know, and then I feel like I it feels like I never left the Border Patrol. Oh. It literally feels like I was a Border Patrol agent. I left. I traveled the world for 22 months and then I came back to work. It's an interesting comment, though. But uh, how many of your uh, partners in the air marshals are agents? Oh, there's tons. Right. Yeah. The overwhelming majority, I yeah. think, of, of that entire service are Border Patrol. Yeah. So by extension, it's family again. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, Chief, Chief Owens and I talked about in my, in my podcast as well, like uh, my class, it, you know, you come in around that 2000, you know, time frame uh, and you kind of bleed into post 9-11 environment. And you're still with this organization. Uh, folks start to get uh, better opportunities uh, from maybe different locations to get back home. They have a different sense of calling. And, and we lost quite a few folks from the rank and file uh, to the federal air marshals. And it sounds like you were a part of that. Thousands. And, yeah, thousands. Yeah. But for some reason, uh, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't stay away, you know, only for 22 months. And you come back into the U.S. Border Patrol uh, as a supervisory Border Patrol agent, course developer instructor here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy in Artesia. Yeah, for, for me at the time, that's actually a promotion opportunity. Okay. Um, so a lot of people may not know the full history, but at that time, to be a GS-13 supervisory Border Patrol agent mm -hmm. in the U.S. Border Patrol, the only place you got a GS-13 was at the Border Patrol Academy. Um, this was before the across-the-board um, uh, pay adjustments, pay increases, mm -hmm. you know, all of that kind of stuff. So um, when I came back, I came back, I saw it, number one, as an opportunity to come back to do, do what I actually love to do. Right. And, you know, I'm getting promoted out of it you know, at, you know, all at the same time. So, you know, that was, that was an easy yes, um, <laughs> saying, saying that and, and then relocating from, from New York city back here to Artesia, New Mexico. How was the, uh, application process? Did you have to go back on USA jobs and apply for a supervisory board agent? And then was there some kind of logistical issue that gets you back in the ranks? No, no, that particular job announcement actually in the job announcement itself, it said it was open DHS wide. Huh. So if you were, prior, you know, graduate of the academy and you were a career employee and you worked anywhere within the Department of Homeland Security at that point, yeah. it literally, I just went from one pay period there to the pay period here. It was, it was that easy. So going back to, you kind of mentioned history. I, I, I obviously wasn't there when the decision was made, but um, it sounds to me like the Border Patrol is trying to grow at this time. Oh, big time. So yeah. they, they, they announced this as a DHY, DHS wide opportunity right. to come rejoin the ranks. If you're, you know, formerly uh, commissioned as a border patrol agent at the same time when you know when you get here in 05 06 uh we're trying to grow by at, 6, at that time in 06 was it was actually called ramp 6000 yep. we were trying to grow the border patrol by 6000 new agents right. over and above attrition yeah and we did that in a very 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 short order uh, you and i both kind of lived that life uh here here at the border patrol academy and uh the numbers are staggering of the, of the right. amount of people that we put through those years so you know, how we got anything else done, I'll never know, but uh, it was it was an intense time here. Right. I, I stayed out here for about two years, and in that time, I was um, in uh, operations at the time yeah. and, uh, you know, leading, uh, you know, the leading lead coordinator for these classes. Mm -hmm. And I had 16 classes yeah. in that very short period of time. Yeah. So there's 880 people out there in the Border Patrol. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That uh, when you're considering we have 19,000 or so folks, uh, yeah. you know, uh, in the ranks right now, 
uh, nearly a thousand people that, that you've uh, had the opportunity right. just in that small window right. is pretty impressive. Operations being, of course, uh, the operations department here at the Border Patrol Academy. Uh, and back then, uh, as it was when I was here, we actually also taught law. So we taught Border Patrol operations, how to be a Border Patrol agent. And we also taught the, the law curriculum right. while also having uh, the responsibility to have class oversight, which means we dealt with all the administrative uh, paperwork and logistics that comes with uh, managing classes of 50 or so folks uh, every time, every you know, couple of days as they were coming. I think at one point we were doing like three or four uh, EODs a week. Yeah, we, we're, we're doing EODs every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. and graduations every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, yeah. I remember them. So all good things must come to an end. The Borcho Academy, you'd had enough of that, and uh, you had the opportunity to go to uh, Border Patrol headquarters. So you're kind of rounding off that, you know, you've been kind of broadened a little bit with the air marshals. Uh, you, you spent some time in San Diego. Uh, now you're doing that uh, HQ tour in 2007. What was that like? Um, it was interesting when I, when I first got up to uh, DC, I spent four total years up there. And when I first got up there, I went into at the time, what was enforcement information technologies. So on the uh, tech side of it and oversaw infrastructure services, which is, all of the interaction with OIT at the time, right. um, with the with our network, actually all of the uh, purchasing of computers, you know everything about that entire process yeah. that that took. And then we were also at, we were just finishing off the the border patrol was just finishing off the transition out of the prior INS system, so mm -hmm. what was then ICE, over to the CBP system. Right. And so I got to, got to help with, uh, with finishing that project off too. Excellent. So it's, it's a great point. Um, we, we both do a lot of mentoring uh, of, of up-and-coming agents. And, and for those of you listening, um, I can't say it enough. There are, if you go to headquarters, anybody can be an operator. Anybody can go into ops and, and do operational stuff and support a sector. And that's really good business to do. But at the same time, there are other opportunities to expand uh, what you're capable of, your capabilities, uh, expand your knowledge base, uh, expand your your entire portfolio into other things. So, you know, kind of a, a perfect example here. You go up, to, you go up and, and do. In fact, I think you succeeded uh, Chief Hudak at the time. I did. Is that right? Yeah, so this he, is the second time he was you, just departing. That's and then right. I was taking over. So he takes over for Chief Hudak for the first time, uh, 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 coming out of coming out of the academy going into DC, but it doesn't, it, the whole point here is you don't have to just go be an operator. You can go learn other things and there is still a path for you to ascend into whatever level of leadership you aspire to. In fact, it could be argued that the broader you are, the better potential leader you are going to be uh, in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say broadening certainly matters uh, anywhere across the whole entire you know, leadership spectrum. You have to be able to, you know, reach back to other experiences, right. leverage other things, other ways of getting, you know, objectives completed. Right. And you learn that from different places, but you also learn that from different types of work that you do throughout your career. Right. And it'll it'll definitely make it easier for you to to leverage future problems using past experiences. Yeah, there was a, uh, so kind of apropos, uh, there was a uh, uh, 
a statement made by a, a two-star general at the Pentagon when I was at the U.S. Army War College, and we were doing a staff ride to D.C., a national security staff ride. And, and I'll never forget it. The, the, the general says, at the strategic level, all of the easy problems have already been solved. That's and your right. ability to solve them by yourself probably doesn't exist. That's right. Right? So speaking of the Army War College, <laughs> while you're at the uh, while you're assigned to Border Patrol headquarters in 07, you also, I think in 2011, go over to the U.S. Army War College as an in-resident yeah. student. It, w- it was class of 2010. 10, okay. Um, so he- headed up there at the end of 2009, graduated halfway through 2010. And it was a, it was an opportunity. Um, I, I consider myself extremely lucky to even get the opportunity to be at the War College. There were uh, 30 civilians, what the military would, would call civilian, mm-hmm. 30 civilians there that year. So I was one of 30 getting the opportunity to go up there. And, you know, it's it's hard to really capture the impact of that experience in words, especially in short time periods like yeah. this, but truly phenomenal. You know firsthand, yeah. um, but an unbelievable experience that literally nothing could ever change it after that. Yeah. Like you're, you're never going to forget that one year in residence. Yeah. So Chief Owens and I talked about that as well uh, on the podcast, and obviously he went to a, a different uh, school within the uh, National Defense University. You and I uh, obviously both attended the U.S. Army War College. And one of my bigger takeaways was um, just the quality of American that is operating in the national security space, the global security space. Uh, you know, average you know Joe American, to include myself, prior to the experience, even though I've been a border patrol agent, you know, for 18 years at the, at the time or whatever it was, uh, did not uh, understand nor appreciate the caliber of folks. Uh, doing work on our behalf to keep right. this country safe. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and that, 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 that's really the the word to capture that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You, you you get done with the war college, you come out with a master's degree in strategic studies, and you go into this is where you start to first touch the Laredo sector. This is 2011. You become the uh, patrol agent in charge of the Catula Border Patrol Station. Is that right? That's the first. That, all, all of that, all that's good. I just want to go back to the uh, War College for just yeah, a yeah. second. Absolutely. Um, while, whenever you go to these types of opportunities, uh, we talk about um, you know the whole idea of broadening. Mm-hmm. Go to these opportunities. Get as much out of these opportunities as you possibly can yeah. when you go. So strict. You know, it's it's a. It's a business trip, mm-hmm. you know, right? It's not vacation. Right. And um, so you're going there, you're putting in a lot of work at the War College. The War College offers an opportunity once you fit, once you complete the first two core classes. They offer, I think it's three different opportunities where you can go off and specialize mm-hmm. in, in other programs. And one of those opportunities is the Advanced Strategic Art Program at the U.S. Army War College. A lot of people were... You know, there's 350 students at the War College in total. Um, that year, 42 of them applied for ASAP. So ASAP is the honors course. Um, it means a tremendous amount of more work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the only thing they promised you is more reading, more writing. It's, it's, by the way. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a little more work. It's, <laughs> it's so much additional work that they actually assign you an office in the library. <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how much more work it is. But I applied for it that year because I figured, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, CBP, and the Border Patrol are sending me here for a year yeah. to gather as much knowledge as I can and bring it back to the organization. Yeah. So trying to maximize that, I applied for ASAP that year. 
Um, 42 people applied. It was one of 13 um, that got into the ASAP seminar that year. So I spent the following nine months um, with the ASAP seminar finishing out that particular program. Mm. It was everything they promised. It was a lot more work. And um, what was really key about that experience, um, both for myself and the United States Army, was that I was the first non-military officer ever selected to and complete ASAP in the history of the U.S. Army. So, and they put that quote, it's like right in the transcript. So it was a big deal to the Army, too. Yeah, that's awesome. The uh, Obviously, it uh, paved the way for guys like me. Uh, when I go through the, when I went through the, uh, the U.S. Army War College, I was able to uh, make it into the ASAP as well. And uh, the cool part about it is there's a, um, it's it's extremely Socratic, but at the same time they uh, they take you out of the classroom and literally put you in the battlefield. Oh yeah, right. So you're while you know meanwhile you're you know you're you're kind of learning and, and instructing in the Socratic method. You're doing it from, uh, you know, the riverbank in Mississippi, in right. Vicksburg. Right. Mm-hmm. You're doing it from Pickett's Charge, at uh, at uh, Gettysburg. You're doing it from Omaha Beach right. in in uh, in France. Gila, Sicily. You're doing it from Gila, Sicily. Standing on right. an ironclad. That's in right. Mississippi. 100%. You're doing it from uh, Point to Hawk. That's right. Uh, on the actual point. Uh, and and uh, learning from those those uh, Americans that I talked about mm-hmm. and kind of teaching each other. Uh, obviously informed by what you mentioned, the uh, the extra uh, extra load of academics that they that they throw on you. But um, I'm sure you you would agree with this. I would not have had it any other way. Oh, no. You know, no. so no. anybody aspiring to go to the U.S. Army War College, uh, obviously we're uh, extremely big proponents of it. But uh, I think uh, Chief Landrum kind of uh, mentioned the biggest takeaway is, you know, you're going to get out of these types of uh, experiences, what you put into them. And if you're given the opportunity to do that, uh, it's your responsibility to get literally all you can out of them and take it back and kind of enrich uh, your leadership style and what you bring back to the organization. Um, and, you know, we talk about this probably daily. There's things that you and I, you know, you developed in 2011 as a part of the, you know, your cohort and things that I started to work on in, you know, 2017 as a part of my cohort that, that we use today, you know, leader engagement, readiness, and modernization came right out of the halls of, uh, of root, root hall at the U S army war college for me. So, Going on to uh, Catula in 2011, you become the patrol agent in charge. And in Catula, this is so you're you're on the heels of this education, you're on the heels of you know broadening your mind and, and your academic background, but you start to what I would argue kind of conceptualize and lead an organization that almost starts to change the way we do business in South Texas. Um, so, if can you tell me generally the intent behind uh, what you kind of coined as Operation Two Nine Catula? So when I first got down to Catula, you know, you're you're new to a station. Everybody that's gone in, you know, as a pack or a D-pack into a station, they're trying to get the lay of the land. They're trying to figure out, you know, what's going on there and how they can actually try to bring some impact, um, you know, to that particular uh, area of responsibility. And one of the things that I noticed and and granted, I'd been in HQ for four years. Mm -hmm. So I was in the field. You know, went back, was in HQ for four years, you know, now back in the field. And one of the things that was that was hitting me pretty strong was the number of stolen vehicles, Mm -hmm. like hearing on the radio, you know, just sitting there and it's positive 29 and listening to the agent's voice and the agent's just 
calm and professional, you know, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I hear positive 29. I'm like, yeah. you know, do we need to go out and help them? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, like, let's go, you yeah. know, kind of thing. And then start to get to the magnitude of the stolen vehicles operating in that area. So yeah. start working with the uh, collateral intel that's there and kind of get this picture. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're like, you know, we have all this. And they brought all this data to my office for literally the past few years. You know, and so I'm looking at this data and I'm, you know, kind of shocked, <laughs> you know, that they have all the data. And I'm like, why, why is something not being done about this? Right. You know, and they're like, well, you know, we tried, but, you know, people weren't pushing it. Mm. Um, so I took it. Um, that, that later is what you, what you um, cited there as being Operation 2-9 Catula. Mm. Worked with um, SOD, mm. Special Operations Detachment in Laredo Sector. Uh, Trojan in charge at the time was Alex Lopez, yeah. who who I knew pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, so explained this whole entire problem set and start trying to utilize a lot of the education, the counter network side mm -hmm. of everything that we learned in the in the Army War College, right. and and bring that to true application in the field. Right. So this is a big deal. So I mean, not not to get overly academic on it, but you're coming out. Of, you, you know, we're, you're in the right in the middle of the war. Right. At the Army War College, so the novel solutions that were being developed in two thousand and you know three to two thousand and seven or so are now the new textbooks, for lack of a better right. uh, you know a way of saying it. Uh, and and you start talking about in the introduction of utilizing intelligence more, um, utilizing counter network operations, kind mm -hmm. of coin operations right. uh, at the same time. So you take that you know that that kind of knowledge that you gained over the years previous, and you apply it down into South Texas. And you really start to work on the networks that are that you can actually have an impact against um, that were, you know, were arms, if you will, or extensions of these transnational criminal networks that maybe had been based in a country where we didn't have as much influence right. or capability. Now you're applying a capability against them here in the United States. Right. It, it, it was something that it really had always been there. It just had not been addressed in that manner um, prior, prior to that. Um, certainly not on any kind of a uh, on any kind of a large scale, and you know it was you know looking at the problem set. Yeah, yes, we have this problem set, you know, down there, right. and you know we were there were you know there were some weekends literally we were recovering more than forty mm -hmm. stolen vehicles a weekend. Right. You know, and when you extrapolate that out over several years, and then you look at the bigger picture of that, mm -hmm. you know, like us wanting to start target targeting that particular asset or the people that are that are stealing those vehicles, right. you know, that are contributing to that actual criminal network. Um, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, trying to find the stolen vehicle, return it to its rightful right. owner. You know, that wasn't really the issue. It was that that issue was being utilized to further the border crimes that were being committed. Okay. And if we could address one part of that, mm -hmm. you know, then we could slow down the amount of entries in that particular area. Mm -hmm. If people had nowhere to go, yeah. you know, we were taking you know, away where, the no transportation way to get there. piece, yeah. you know, then they would have to come up with a different plan. Right. So, um, so that kind of leads into the creation of what was known as the uh, South Texas campaign or the yeah. STC. Uh, ironically enough, uh, Chief Hudak was also a, a member of that. He, he had a, a division lead in that under under former Chief uh, Robert Harris, who was the director of uh, STC. But he also uh, kind of this this whole 
thing that, that was started in, in 2011 with the STC, Op 29 Cthulhu was kind of the genesis of the, like the first, you know, jump jumping off point to, hey, we can actually really do some counter counter network operations. This eventually leads into uh, the Joint Task Force West, uh, which was an initiative by uh, then Secretary Jay Johnson um, and, you know, kind of built out where uh, Director Harris becomes the director and you serve as the first chief, uh, of staff. chief of staff for that. And you have a pretty cool story of how that whole went down. <laughs> so if you don't mind uh, laying that out for us. Um, with that story, really, we, we talk about being uh, flexible and being resilient That's quite a right. bit. Um, throughout the organization, and you know, we talk about resiliency a lot. Um, th- this was real-world application of that. Yeah. So, um, you know, post Catula, I had gone over to Laredo North, become Trojan in charge there, and then after that, after a couple years over there, I went to Laredo Sector and became division chief at Laredo Sector. Yeah. And I was sitting there in my office one day as division <laughs> chief, and. You know, coming down the hall came in uh, Chief Harris, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, and he comes he comes walking through. I'll never forget it. He comes walking around the corner of my door, and he just looks over at me, and he's like, hey, Landrum. He's like, whatever all that stuff is on your <laughs> desk, he goes, get rid of all that stuff. You know, right? He goes, effective tomorrow, you're now the chief of staff of Joint Task Force West. And I, just, I remember looking up and just asking him, sir, what's Joint Task Force West? <laughs> So within about 36 hours, literally, we flew up to D.C. We were sitting in Secretary Jay Johnson's office, and we were getting the full readout with the, with the other components, yeah. um, components from from HSI and from Coast Guard, yeah. um, of exactly what the secretary's expectation was with us <laughs> and the extremely compressed timeline we had to stand that up and be successful at it. Right. You know, side note, I think everybody has, everybody that ever, uh, you know, had the pleasure of coming, uh, coming across paths with uh, former Chief Harris has a, uh, has a Chief Harris uh, story kind of rhymes similar to that. If you know Chief Harris, yeah. you, you can picture the story. No, if you know him, you, you've probably been in those shoes and, you know, equally, you've probably been in your shoes or like 10-4 Chief, uh, by the way. What's that? <laughs> you know, let's do that. What is it? Um, we're we're going we're gonna to be successful. That's right. Um, and and so you, you, you do this, this uh, joint task force where you stand it up, essentially build it from literally nothing into uh, what it kind of matured into over time. Um, it has since been disbanded. But at the same time, it was, uh, you know, one of the stories here is just because you're in Catula, Texas, context Catula, texas is a is a sec is a station in the laredo sector it's north of the border it's kind of like freer or hebronville it is not on the line so a lot of times state people who work at these outstations they feel like they don't get the same attention as maybe the laredo south or the laredo north that has the biggest checkpoint in the country um but understand that just because you may not think you're doing a ton of work to uh to provide this this nation security uh, understand that you know with one operation it can be built off into a whole organization that didn't exist previously in in the entire department of homeland security after you uh, get done uh, building jtf west with uh, chief harris and others uh, you promote to the deputy chief patrol agent uh, in yuma sector so now we're we're kind of uh, illustrating again these varied experiences. You go from San Diego to New York to the Academy to DC, South Texas. Now we're now we're touching back uh, on the West Coast, if you will. 
uh, in Yuma sector and you do the deputy chief in Yuma for about five years. Um, within that five years, though, you go to the uh, Department of Homeland Security Senior Executive Service Candidate Development Program, or the SDHS SCS CDP. You've heard uh, Chief Owens talk about it. Uh, he was a he was a uh, graduate of that. Uh, I was a graduate of that. Uh, formerly before me, Carl uh, was a graduate of that as well. But um, we talk also within the, within the confines of the SCS CDP, you have to go and do a developmental assignment. It's meant to both stretch you personally and professionally, but really kind of introduce you and test your bona fides to becoming a senior executive. So it's almost like a general officer, a flag officer in the military. We don't need you necessarily to be perfect at being a border patrol agent. We need you to be a perfect generalist. You have got to be, you know, wide and deep on multiple subjects, not just Catula Station, for example. So... Talk to me a little bit about your developmental assignment. I think it's a pretty cool story. So, it, with that assignment, I, I think it, I think it's interesting to to talk about how I got to the assignment. So, the very very first day, um, once everybody from around the country, whenever you're in a CDP, and and again, great program. Anybody that's interested in SES, anywhere in the federal government, find either that same CDP Canada Development Program or any other CDP that you would be eligible to attend, you know, and try to get into those experiences. They're, they're going to help you and they're going to make that process, that transition from a general schedule employee to an SES much easier, mm-hmm. um, easier process. But so we get up there and it's, it's the very first, the very first trip to uh, DC for that particular cohort. Um, it's before they break you up into the three littler cohorts. So it's about 50 people all together, all the stu- students for that year. And standing there and, you know, the folks from DHS come in the room and they, you know, talk about all the great things that you're going to do because you, you have eight months of, edu- of academics at the American University before the, um, before the uh, developmental assignment. And, you know, so they talk about all of that. And then they say, you know, you're going to be, you're going to go to a, you know, a developmental assignment, a stretch assignment. And the only requirement is, mm-hmm. is that assignment will be a vacant SES position, mm-hmm. you know, or equivalent. And the only requirement was, was that you cannot do it in your home agency. Yeah. So for me, that meant CBP was off limits. Yeah. I had to find something somewhere else. And then they threw in you know, this comment at the end and they're like, you know, and you can do that in any other agency in the federal government mm. or you can do that in the private sector. Yeah. And I was dumbfounded. I, <laughs> I've never heard of anybody going to the private sector. Right. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's other experiences out there, but I've, I had never heard of it. So I immediately raised my hand and I asked the question and I'm, I'm like, how, you know, serious are you all about you can do it in the private sector? And they're like, well, you can, you know, but there's this other easier route. You can do it this way. If you choose to do the private sector, you know, you have to find the company, you know, and then you have to do the whole process, you know, legal ethics, getting it through resource boards, getting it approved, you know, on and on. Mm -hmm. You have to do the whole process and you'll have to do all of that on your own. Or you can just identify a vacant SES and just go there. So, you know, I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, we have, eight months of school, right? Like, how hard can this be, <laughs> you know? And I remember going back to the going back to the uh, hotel that night and sitting there thinking, like, how would I do this? Like, I, I want to do it. It's kind of an interesting way 
of broadening, right. you know, and, um, you know, but where do you even start, yeah. you know, right? So I remember the first, uh, the first day or two, I, I put together, you know, a series of different companies in the private sector that at least I found interesting and yeah. thought I would be able to learn some stuff there and bring it back to the organization. Yeah. And so I came up, I narrowed that list down to 10 companies. Mm -hmm. And then came the getting into the companies, mm -hmm. you know, and how do you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, again, nobody's helping you. It's just you, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, but I have eight months, right? So mm -hmm. I can, I can figure this out. And I tried everything. I mean, everything under the sun. I tried snail mail, email, <laughs> you know, corporate chat rooms. You know, I tried going through and finding email addresses of um, C-suite members in these organizations, right. you know, and then, you know, let's just say you get lucky and you actually, I didn't, I didn't realize how much I bit off at the time. <laughs> I, I really didn't. I'm learning that. But let's just say you get lucky and you actually make it to the right decision maker, right? Because mm -hmm. it's only somebody from a C-suite that's going to bring you on as an SES equivalent, right. you know? And, and then to tell the story that, you know, I'm with the federal government and I'm here to help, <laughs> you know. You it's know, going and, over like a lead balloon. Yes. And yeah. Nobody wants to invite the federal government to come in for free yeah. into their C-suite, you know, and yeah. expose their entire company. You know, they have no idea what's happening and how this program's working. Right. Um, all, all that being said, though, um, I was fortunate enough to get responses and it took three months mm -hmm. of work. Um, but I was fortunate enough to start getting responses from five of the companies, yeah. you know, right? And I'll never forget. The five companies were Google, Google X, uh, Dropbox, Coke Industries, Coke mm -hmm. Brothers, yep. and McChrystal Group. Yeah. So uh, General Stanley McChrystal retired uh, from United States Army, has his own um, consulting firm yeah. um, in, in Alexandria, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so th those were the companies that started you know, interacting with me. And the guys I was talking to from the Crystal Group, which at the time were like or Ryan Fall, uh, Chris Fussell, yep. you know, some of those guys, um, you know, they were trying to figure out exactly what it is that I was asking for also. Mm -hmm. um, they did ask for a face-to-face uh, -face meeting. So I went up and, you know, that's the interview. I didn't yeah. know. I thought it was just a regular meeting, but that's yeah. the interview process. And then, uh, you know, uh, General McChrystal's like, absolutely. You know, he, at the time they had uh, two different lines of business. Mm -hmm. um, they were bringing on a third line of business, which was the McChrystal Group Leadership Institute, um, today known as McChrystal Academy. Yeah. And, you know, uh, General McChrystal asked me, to, you know, if I would be interested to come up there, be the chief of staff and help him start building that project, you know, and leveraging. I, I was able to leverage a lot of experiences in the stand-up, you know, with the SDC and JTFW, you know, and this is another new organization and right. building it. Yeah. So there, there was one valuable, I mean, truly valuable thing, though, that I learned um, getting to do that opportunity in the private sector. And, and it seems, um, it seems kind of simple, but for me, it's probably one of the most valuable things that I learned as a government employee. Mm -hmm. And that's truly the value of the dollar. The value of the dollar. That is super interesting. I don't think that Border Patrol agents necessarily, um, you, you described it perfectly, right? We, we, we understand that we consume a lot of stuff. We get a lot of stuff. We don't know necessarily how we get that stuff. So how does, you know, going out and doing a stretch assignment or a DA in a place like McChrystal Group where you have to learn the value of a dollar help you lead the men and women of the Laredo sector today? So I, I, 
I had the the developmental assignment experience, right? That was in 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, So I learned from that. I was able to take that back, utilize that as deputy in Yuma, utilize it over the past year as deputy in Laredo, and will continue as chief in Laredo, you know, never forgetting that particular part of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, generally across the board, you know, most government employees across the board, right? We're good stewards of the taxpayer dollar. Mm -hmm. You know, we understand that it's a lot of money that the taxpayer gives us and we try to spend it on prudent things. You know, we we try to do all of that, but we don't really understand the constraints or limitations Mm -hmm. of it. So when I'm talking about the value of the dollar, you know, right, that was something, you know, and at the time in the developmental experience, in the developmental assignment, you know, I didn't, it didn't weigh on me then. You know, I was under intense pressure to be successful in that thing, and that's really what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Post that, once I got back into my regular government job, you know, and budgeting comes up or, you know, money and those types of things, I find that I'm now thinking about this a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, right? I'm a little more concerned <laughs> about how much money. Is it enough for this project? Mm-hmm. Are we utilizing it appropriately? Right. Will the project have the right return on investment? You know, are we looking at, you know, the the correct performance indicators to actually get that money, you know, and utilize that money the right way? You know, so it just it's a whole other echelon um, of thinking about money. And it's challenging because in that developmental assignment, there was no more money. You know, I couldn't go get it from the next program manager who had something left over, you know, or go back to Congress. There was no going back to the C-suite and McChrystal Group. They made it clear (laughs) that the budget was the budget, you know. And so it it was challenging and definitely weighs on me and something I've just I've never forgot that the value of the dollar. Yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, we kind of the frame here, you know, of all the easy problems have already been solved. It it, kind of helps frame your leadership uh, of the Laredo sector because, you know, inevitably as a chief, everybody's got this project they want funded and because it's going to be the next greatest thing to border security or the next greatest thing to resiliency or the next greatest thing to situation X. But now that you're thinking differently, more corporately uh, and, you know, always responsibly about how we spend the dollars that we are given um, really kind of puts you in some situations where you get to make hard decisions. There's a back end piece of, of communicating to the people why we're doing what we're doing. You know, if it doesn't fall in, say, a bucket of leader engagement, readiness, or modernization, it's not worth our dollars today, you know, potentially that kind of thing. Right. And and I'm, I'm able to actually draw upon that DA experience right. when I speak to the agents about yeah. why things aren't, you know, right. how they think they should be. Right. Which yeah. is a part of your responsibility as a leader. Right. You know, there, we've all experienced leaders in the past like, no, I said no, that's why, you know, we're going to do it the way I said. That's it. No explanation. Well, that's not developing the future of the organization either. Right. So you're taking the time to both be responsible with the, with the dollars that you have because you understand them, but at the same time, you know, taking, taking the time to uh, develop the staff. That's, that's exactly what you should be doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Because in the government, we get budgets, we get big budgets, yeah. you know, and whenever I need something, when I need to stand up a JTFW, I got people I can go to and they can move money around. Right. You know, or we can go get more money or we can go back to the appropriators and ask for more money. There's a lot of ways, you know, of of getting money in the federal government. Mm -hmm. But in the private sector, I was given a budget and asked to complete this entire project, stand up this new line of business, make it profitable for the company. 
you know, and that included the hiring of the staff for that line of business as well. Right. And you couldn't go back and get more money. Like right. that was it. I mean, you had to make it work on the budget that that was actually given. Right. Um, which really that that part weighed heavily for me, right. as somebody who had been in the federal government, you know, my my entire adult career, right. you know, and now had to actually produce money in order to make money. Yeah, right. You know, so. Excellent. So again, you uh, <clears throat> no. Now you're you've been broadened. You've hit the education. You've got the command. Uh, you know, in, in Yuma, and uh, you, you had the kind of H HQ experience. So you're kind of fully well rounded uh, as as a border treasurer at this point. You get the next call, and uh, that's to be the uh, the promotion you were after, which was the uh, senior executive service position of deputy chief patrol agent in the Laredo sector. That's in 2020. That was the next step. That that was the next step. Um, it was a huge opportunity for me. It was an opportunity to come back to Laredo, the place that I had left five years earlier. Um, I love it there, so <laughs> so it was a no brainer. You know, when 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 the call came and and that was that was the the location on the table. Um, absolutely, and I've loved every minute of it. So great. And we fast forward to obviously uh, we, what we talked about last uh, last week. You get the call actually probably in person from, from Chief uh, Ortiz, and he, he offers you this position of uh, Chief Patrol Agent. So now you have full command uh, behind uh, Deputy Hudak. Now you have full command uh, of Laredo Sector. Um, so very apropos with the intent of the podcast today and the What's Important Now podcast, maybe take some time and tell me your two, maybe three uh, topics, top what's important now issues for you as the chief patrol agent of the Laredo sector? So I, I would say three things. And, and obviously it's, you know, 2022 right now, we are fully aware, you know, of the climate that border patrol agents are working in out yeah. there and the uh, stresses, truly stressing their resiliency every single day. Yeah. Um, agents are doing today stuff that traditionally we did not train them to do. Um, we're spending in Laredo, I, I can't speak for all the other sectors, I think they're similar on the southwest border, mm -hmm. but in Laredo we're spending about 60% of our available manpower, literally every shift, 24-7, it never stops, about 60% of that in either processing or care and custody. Yeah. Um, so there's you know tremendous impact to the agents mm -hmm. you know, on that that particular, you know, that particular um, activity going on. And it's not lost on me, especially as the new chief, you know, that. So, you know, what's important now, I think, in this environment right now, literally is getting our agents back to the border, yeah. right? They came in to perform border security and thereby national security. They wanted to contribute to securing the communities in which they work, mm -hmm. you know, those regional areas, thereby the United States. You can carry that out hemispherically and globally as well. Right. You know, um, the job they're doing today is not necessarily what they signed up for, but they are professionals. In fact, I would call them consummate professionals, and they are getting the job done. Yeah. They are meeting the expectation, and they are ensuring that people, that human beings that are being caught up in this process and being exploited by these transnational criminal organizations in this process, they are ensuring that these human beings are being taken care of, you know, to the fullest extent of their ability. And, um, you know, to the tune, you know, you saw the numbers last year, so I, I, don't, I don't think I even need to quote them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, 
first and foremost, we've got to get Border Patrol agents out doing Border Patrol agent work. And we need to organizationally find a way to get processing and care and custody done with appropriate personnel for that. Yeah. You know, not actually using a GS-12 Border Patrol agent for that particular activity. Okay. Um, second thing, so, you know, that that's, you know, the first thing, you know, number one right there, get agents back to the field. Second thing for me is going to be actually, you know, trying to improve um our ability to have operational advantage or mission advantage, you know, whichever way you want to look at that. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that, even in the stressed environment that we're in today. Um, you can leverage technology, you know, different ways. I said this early on in, in, in this particular broadcast, um, you know, make things better, faster, easier for the agents. Yeah. So anywhere that I can utilize technology, that I can bring technology into the space mm -hmm. that improves the situation that the agents are actually experiencing on a daily basis, makes it easier for them to do their border security job and national security mission that, that they're out there doing every day, mm -hmm. I want to leverage all those technologies. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's evident throughout Laredo sector. They're very clear on it. Chief Hudak was was a great supporter, yeah. early adopter of innovative change. Yeah. You know, right? And and I definitely just picked up that mantle. And we're going to keep, you know, leveraging as much technology in all directions that we possibly can to help the agents that are doing this work every single day. Um, and then, from the from the third thing, you know, of for me, you know, of what's important now as a as a new new chief in the border patrol um and and realizing the amount of influence that you actually have um i also would very much work on trying to influence you know national narrative national policy mm -hmm. because national policy is really what changes everything and makes it better or worse for the agents in the field and, you know, as chief, you know, I, I have an obligation to go out and make those arguments on behalf of all the men and women of Laredo sector right. and the U.S. Border Patrol, right. you know, and, 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 that, and participate in creating that, you know, the national narrative and guiding that national policy, right. you know, and making this entire environment better for all of those agents, but also better for all of the people that live in the United States. Right. That's what they're hiring us to do. They hired us to go out there and secure the border and contribute to national security, yeah. you know, and we owe that to all the taxpayers yeah. and we owe that to every single, you know, agent that's out there and professional staff member that's working in this organization to make that job better, easier, faster for them. Excellent. So to recap that, I hear boots back to the border. I hear to achieve mission advantage by any means necessary. And then tell the story of national security through the lens of a border patrol agent. That's right. Excellent. All right. So as we uh, conclude this, uh, our time together, um, it is custom that uh, everybody knows we have our mantra of honor first and honor first means something different to everybody. Uh, so I'll ask you as we, as we uh, depart our time together, what does honor first mean to Carl Landrum, chief of, chief of Laredo sector? So, you know, it, it's always it's always hard. It's always the why, you know, right? It's the hardest thing. We can always say the what we do and how we do it, but it's always hard for somebody to say why we do it. Yeah. And um, and 
when you look at honor first, you have to, in, in my opinion, you have to look at complete organizational excellence. All right. So one of our three peers or, you know, tiers right now, um, actually going out and pursuing organizational excellence in every way imaginable. All right. Even even walking into this room today, I'm not sure how much the audience is going to be able to see, yeah. but you can see branding on both walls. I can yeah. see branding in the lights, you know, above us. Yeah. Right. All of that goes to organizational excellence. Yeah. It's a constant reminder, both on and off duty. It's a way of life. Mm. You know, it's no matter what you do as a Border Patrol agent on duty or off. Yeah. Right. It's are you contributing to that particular community? Is whatever you're doing today, is it okay that it's on the front page of the paper tomorrow? Correct. And it should be. And everybody should be proud of what they're doing out there. Mm-hmm. You know, they do immense work, you know, on a daily basis, every single day, you know, for the most part, off duty, you know, right? Same same thing. Everybody does what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it. Everybody never forgets that they are a federal agent in the United States government, yeah. you know, and, you know, Honor First isn't 8 to 5 Monday through Friday. Yeah. It's 24-7 for the rest of your career, you know, until the day you choose to retire, resign, or transfer somewhere else. Right. Excellent. All right. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. And uh, Chief, Carl, uh, you know, I kind of started off this podcast by saying, uh, you know, we the experiences that we share over time in this organization uh, kind of, you know, bring us together and bond us as a family member as if we were blood. And then sometimes we are indeed bound by blood to that family member uh, that we create with these experience and experiences. And uh, I'm fortunate, to, fortunate enough to say that I had the opportunity to have both in you, and I appreciate it. And uh, good luck in your command at the Laredo sector. Thank you. Appreciate right. it.